The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Today, we look at mental health through the lens of being an only or a first In the context of this episode, when I say only, I mean someone who is a minority at their workplace because of their race, background, gender, sexual orientation, or other identity. We'll examine how being an only or the first can impact your anxiety and your mental health and how being a member of a minority group could affect your comfort levels with disclosing an anxiety disorder. We'll look at being an only through the lens of an expert on anxiety among African-American professionals, Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, who is our first guest today. Our second guest is Nilifer Merchant, who wrote one of my favorite books, The Power of Onlyness. Because your only can also be your power. The good news is that power is changing and dominance shifting slowly but surely away from forcing those of us who seek success to conform to a certain norm. And let's face it, in many workplaces, that norm is the privileged white man. We'll dive into that with Nilifer in an interesting example. So we'll flip the script on being an only with author and technologist Nilifer Merchant and talk about how to find strength and power in your onlyness. Angela Neal Barnett knows that feeling of the only well. In fact, she was the first black woman to be tenured and promoted to the rank of professor in the Kent State University Department of Psychological Sciences, where she directs the program for research on anxiety disorders among African-Americans. Dr. Barnett's work focuses on helping black women and girls overcome anxiety and fear. Dr. Neil Barnett is also the architect and developer of the Build Your Own Theme Song app and the author of Soothe Your Nerves, The Black Woman's Guide to Understanding and Overcoming Anxiety, Panic, and Fear. Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, welcome to The Anxious Achiever. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Maura. I wanted to ask you a question about your experience as an only, because you've got your sort of first status, loud and proud, on your bio. But what has it been like for you to be a first and an only throughout your career? Uh, well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, there have been times when it's been really wonderful, and there have been times when I thought I should get paid for being black. So, <laughs> uh, so it, I mean, it's been ups and downs with challenges and and, and triumphs. Sometimes I, I think that you do it so often that you just don't realize you're an only until it really just hits you in the in the, in the face. I had an incident 
rather recently where somebody said to me, you know, we just didn't understand the value of your work. Mm. And I thought, I wonder if other people get that. Um, what do you say to your grad students? Because I know you you, you have a lot of grad I, students. Um, what I try to do with all my grad students is protect their spirit. And so when mm. we start out any lab meeting, we start out with a quote or a song that's designed to protect their spirit because of the type of research that we do, which focuses on Black Americans. Um, and then uh, I just try to model um, Here's what happens when this happens. Here are our options. Here's the option that I'm going to take. And I think for anyone who is an only, there's a lot of spiritual or mindful work that has to go on in order for you to do it uh, day after day, week after week, year after year. Or else the anxiety, uh, the depression, the anger consumes you. Right. Let's talk a little bit about your work. Um, You've written, to fully understand anxiety in Black women, we must understand how Black women are viewed in this country. So how are Black women viewed and how does this contribute to their anxiety? Well, there are three major uh, images or views of, of, of Black women. Uh, of course, everybody sees the strong Black woman, the woman who keeps on keeping on, that you can handle anything. And that's just not true. That's just how people view Black women. Mm-hmm. Then there's the Jezebel or the video vixen, the highly sexualized uh, Black woman that people use uh, to stereotype black women. And finally, there's the angry black woman image we get to see over and over again. So I have a question that might sound naive, but um, you're, you're a black woman. You've gone, mm-hmm. you've gone to a fancy, not you personally, I'm, this is a hypothetical. You've gone to a fancy law school. You are working at a fancy firm. You have all the credentials in the world. How do those stereotypes come into play when theoretically your credentials stand, you know, on the same par as everyone else in the office? So they make, they come into play in one of two ways. Either people say, well, you're not like other black women, Mm. which goes to the idea that people believe there's only one way to be black in this country. And you'll hear people in corporate law, corporate MBA say, that's just what people say to me. Mm. You know, you're not like other black women or other black men. And then the other way is they try to fit you into one of those stereotypes. How? Well, they may see you as the strong black woman, so that anything that happens, they come running to you and they tell you all your problems because you can help them fix it. Mm -hmm. The other way uh, that if you assert yourself, then they say, oh, you you know, we got an angry black woman in the office. Mm -hmm. What are the stakes of failure? You know, a lot of what uh, we talk about on the show is is when you are an anxious person, you might have a stronger will to perfectionism or you have catastrophized 
failures mm-hmm. at work that other people might not even notice. And I'm curious. I mean, mm-hmm. I am thinking of the pressure and, oh, my gosh, if I screw up, if I don't make it, I'm not just letting myself down. I'm letting a community down. And and how does that play into anxiety? Well, collectivism is what it's called, mm-hmm. uh, that when we do something, it's not only our success, it's the family's success, it's the community's success. Right. I, I always tell people when I received my PhD, 28 other people received it with me. So <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of great, though. <laughs> it is kind of great. But when you're anxious yeah. and then you're an only and you're a first, then those three things then combine to make the failure feel worse than it actually is. What do you say to that person who's feeling, you know, who's up for a big promotion and is saying, if I don't get this, that's it, <laughs> you know, and who is, is driving themselves to a point? What, what do you say to them? What we say is, so what? Mm. Because what we're trying to get at is what is the core fear? Mm. And if we can get to the core fear, then we can work to overcome that fear. And you would do this through therapy, through sort of traditional, traditional quote, well, traditional mental health methods, or well, I, there are a couple of things that we do. Uh, oftentimes, we find that at least in the beginning, uh, many black women are little reluctant to do therapy. And so what we do is we use something called sister circles Mm -hmm. and our sister circles are called SOS. So we bring together four to 10 black women and there's some things that we use to help them recognize and then reduce their anxiety. So what I just did with you, the so what, we call the so what chorus. Um, I love that. I want one. Yeah. So again, because many of these women are sharing the same core fear and what they haven't understood is that they weren't the only one. Because remember, you're the only. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find out, wait, there are three other people who feel the way I do. I'm not alone. Are there unique challenges that Black women might face if they do get that diagnosis and then the workplace knows about it or they're in a mental health crisis at work? Well, you know, a couple of things. Again, if if it's an environment where there's no one else there who's Black, where they're they're the only one, then they just might overlook it. Mm. Not overlook it, but just say, okay, I'll just let her. She's having some issues. I'll just let her figure it out. As opposed to what might happen if it was uh, somebody who was of the majority race in the workplace where people might say, okay, let's see what we can do to help you. Mm -hmm. And then I think that to have a panic attack or to endure a social situation with social anxiety Uh, might be misconstrued. So whenever I see an angry Black woman, um, I always want to assess for social anxiety because that anger might be a defense 
from having to actually do the cocktail parties, the small talk, the uh, the, the fundraisers, so the, the soirees, the galas, etc. Also because those images, again, come into play. Mm-hmm. So most Black women, particularly those who are in, who have risen through, who are, who are in high-profile positions or, or in positions where they are the only, see themselves as strong Black women. Mm-hmm. And to be weak and a Black woman is an oxymoron. And mental health crises at work are a sign of weakness. And you're the only one anyway. The belief is that people are looking for an excuse to pull you down, to put you down. Um, and now this happens. And so you you can't show sign of weakness. And oh my goodness, I just did. So Dr. Angela, if I'm an ambitious only and I'm listening to this podcast and I think, oh my gosh, I want a sister circle or I need to work on this. What's the first step I can take starting tomorrow to help address my anxiety in a real way that applies to my life? I think the first step you can take is just to say, you know what? I'm anxious. That's the first step. <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm anxious or I think it's me. I have anxiety. Okay. Once you do that, everything else comes in to pl- in into place. And the second thing you do is okay, okay, let me ask for help. Most black women want help from someone who understands their issues and looks like them. So most HRs now have EAPs or they have they they have uh, mental health professionals that they contract with. Employee assistance programs for, for lay people out there. Yes, employee assistance programs. And you can certainly ask, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who understands black anxiety or anxiety as the anxiety of the only. And there are people out there who do specialize in that. And if your HR isn't helpful, then there are a number of organizations. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, which is ADAA.org, can refer you to a therapist in your area who is the same race or is culturally competent. Now we're going to talk to Nilifer Merchant, who is a person I admire so deeply. Nilifer's work allows us to reclaim our onlyness and our only as a strength, even when society might say it's not. Claiming your spotlight and finding what your unique power is, is not only about your history and your experience, says Nilifer, but it's about defining what the history and experience of your life have come to mean to you how it gives you a unique perspective on the world and how you can bring that to work and add value. So define onlyness. Onlyness. It's that spot in the world only one stands. It's the source of ideas, 
I coined the term back in 2011 because I was trying to identify how do we stop talking about difference in this way that sort of subjugates one group. Uh, you know, there's quote unquote different people who happen to be people of color and and women and so on and everyone else. And I'm like, well, actually every single one of us is different. <sighs> and so we need to center correctly on that spot in the world in which only one stands and stop making one group distinct and one group different, one group seen for what they can only offer and one group seen through the lens of otherness. So onlyness was a way of bridging all that into one term. I love that because it because it throws otherness out the window, which which it should have been thrown out a long time ago. Um, so why is onlyness an important concept for my audience, <laughs> um, an ambitious professional who might struggle with anxiety or depression? The one thing I probably say to more people uh, than any other thing, just when they're talking to me one on one, is I say, you know, for a long time, you've been conditioned to believe that somehow your quote unquote difference mm -hmm. is wrong and that you have to overcome some hurdle you know, in, in this sort of lean in language of just try harder. And what I just want to say is you're t perfectly fine just as you are. And the fact that the world can't see you or doesn't want to see you, while it's a challenge, it's in some ways not about you. We can look at it and kind of separate ourselves and all that anxiety that we carry with it. We can separate that away from who we actually are. I, I want to tell you that, um, I just I just got really really choked up because my son um, my son is on the spectrum and is dealing and he, he's an incredibly you know he, you would most people are shocked to know that and he's so socially attuned and he's just always struggling with things in school that identify him as mm -hmm. othered mm -hmm. and the fact that um, and that's what that's what school and special ed and all of it, all of our structures kind of are built around yeah. is accommodating the other, but never saying you have as much right to be here as anyone else because you're amazing the way you are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So for those of us who have been othered uh, for so long, whether it's because of our sexual orientation or our age or whatever, all the different ways in which people can be othered, it means that between half and 70% of ideas are lost in the economy. But at a personal level, it says to us, those of us who have been otherized, that we don't belong, when the truth is we absolutely do belong. And in fact, the work world needs us. They need the ideas that we bring. Right. Or if we're going to belong, we better damn well fit into a certain box. Well, that's not really belonging, right? That's like... Um, a half-life or something in the, in the Hogwarts world. It's not, that's not to be alive. And so when I want you to belong, I want you to belong as your whole, full, authentic self that can bring all of your creativity and zaniness and everything to the table, because that's ultimately what's going to inform your distinct ideas. So what would you say to that person who is going through some serious anxiety and just really working so desperately hard to hide it from coworkers, from colleagues, from their boss, because they don't want to be seen as another or as someone who is almost to be sort of pitied or, or felt for, which doesn't mean having empathy, but you know what I mean. When I first started this work of loneliness back in 2011, I just said, if you can see how Steve Jobs was centered in his difference 
of loving calligraphy fonts in order for him to care about design the way he did. And you can see the effect on his industry. Mm. Can you see that that distinct spot in the world, only I stand, is just as valid? And I anchor against things like jobs because, of course, I worked for him. So perhaps it's also you know my context of growing up in tech and, and having worked for him. But I just see it as being the thing that we celebrate in so many people. But then we turn and use against another group. I'm like, it's actually the same thing. Only necessary to center that person's zany perspective and allow it to come in and then put the onus back on the other person and say, listen, you got to figure out how to include rather than preclude me from contributing. Right. It's like we, we save that for geniuses, but not the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I know that we're both we're, we're both big fans of, of the work of Rosabeth Moss Cantor um, from Harvard Business School, who um, really explored tokenism. You know, when you represent a group that's less than 15% of the total makeup of your organization, you experience othering that can really constrain your ideas, but it also creates tremendous stress and anxiety in and of itself. And I'm, I'm curious if you're visibly different in a workplace. So not that you may look like, quote, everyone else, but you're hiding something. But if you're visibly different, how does being other diminish your power? And how can it create anxiety? Well, so the data, which is 40 years old now, so she doesn't get enough credit for having uh, named it and claimed it so early. She said, listen, if you're the only person in a room, you're going to get stereotyped. So you're going to get told, oh, women are not ambitious or women are ambitious and that shouldn't happen. You're going to get named in a series of ways. And so um, what I found really interesting about that data was to realize So if the stereotype happens from the outside and I can't control how they view me, then I got to go figure out how to change the room that Mm -hmm. I'm in. Mm -hmm. So instead of feeling like that's on you uh, in terms of overcoming the room, go find a better room. And let me tell you what that looks like. Please. Um, Yeah. So Ava DuVernay, I just wrote about her in a Harvard Business Review, so we can point to that article as a resource. But one of the things that she was able to do, so here's a director who was in Hollywood as a press person Mm -hmm. for many years and was trying to sell the idea of her doing films and so on. And every person she was talking to was basically like looking at her like she was a total weirdo. And like, you know, how dare you? Who are you? Why would you ask such a silly question? And she talks about how she formed Array Now. It's called Array Now, but it was a little production company, which it sounds like such a big deal that she formed this thing. It was her and one other person. (laughs) And what she was doing was creating a room where what she was even proposing as a viable idea wasn't going to get shot down. Right. And she slowly but surely built a room that said that uh, stories that are centered on women and people of color was okay. So she didn't have to sit there and go, let me sell you on this idea that you find crazy. Instead, she actually found a room of people and, and curated a group of people around her that said, what you're doing, I'm excited about. Yep. And that's how early ideas need to get incubated and ultimately scaled. And so figuring out how to get yourself out of spaces where you're going to be invisible anyway, stop trying, go build better rooms. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. 
A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So you're striking at the heart of a myth here because we love a quest story. We love a driven leader who is unafraid to face the odds alone in order to do whatever it takes. We love that myth of exceptionalism. And so part of what I worry about, right, is I hear people talking about forming ERGs, employee research groups, right, resource groups, where they can go and talk about anxiety. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I am going to do this. I have a mental health condition. And part of me worries that by doing that, they're in a great room in the ERG, but they come back to, quote, the rest of the office, and they become that person with the mental health condition who's mm-hmm. willing to talk about it. We're, we're, we're sort of making them exceptional, but part of what Cantor was also talking about is when you are the only, you also have to be responsible for everyone who's like you, you know, you're the mouthpiece for them in that room. So if I'm the person who's out and proud about having a mental health disorder, I'm I'm the anxious woman in the office. Mm-hmm. Is You're that, carrying a much bigger load. Totally. Right? And also, is that all I'm known and, for? So what do I do there? Right. right. So what I, you know, I just answered this question. I was, I was doing a workshop with a major tech company and they had me do some follow-up work. And one of the first questions that was in the follow-up work was, are my people brown people? Are my people women? Are my people? And and I said, actually, it's, that's the most important question, which is Ava DuVernay. Yeah. She was not saying I'm just building a room full of brown people or just full of women. What she was saying is I'm going to be a storyteller that centers women and people of color. Who else is interested in storytelling that is going to have this particular angle? And so she got to define for herself mm. what her people were. And so I think it's totally fine if, if you end up having anxiety and, and you really care about that issue and you want to bring that forward and, and that's what you want to champion, cool. Uh, but what I want you to be able to do for your onlyness is define what is it that matters to you. And identity can be vertical, meaning I was born a woman, I was born you know brown, whatever, right? And it can also be horizontal, which is what is it I care about that connects me hmm. to the thing you care about? And I want onlyness. So when I say onlyness is centered in that spot, only you stand in, you get to define what that identity is. But you're also saying that if you're banging down the doors with what you care about, and no one else in the room you're in is listening, stop banging, go find a better room. Find a better room, because ultimately, it will defeat you, right? I mean, one of the things about I'm now 51 years old. So I've watched several generations of women go to work. Mm. And I will make an observation that the generation before me, and I would say I'm sort of on the cusp of that generation, we basically tried to figure out how to be leaders like men. Tell me your take on imposter syndrome and how you counsel people to, to think about it if they're experiencing it. 
Right. So imposter syndrome is, um, I basically say, listen, how can you be an imposter of your own life? Mm. And so what I think is happening sometimes is we're walking into a room and the predominant group of engineers be, behaves one way and we may want to behave another way. Or marketing behaves this way and, and I don't have that kind of profile inside my thing. Uh, let's say I'm a super, super quiet guy. Right. Or let's say I really care about my, um, let's say I'm a guy who cares about raising my children really actively. Those are all things that I might have to jettison and adopt the norms of the majority group. And yet, if I am really celebrating my onlyness, I'm going to be the one that says, you know what, I go home at 445 because I do daycare pickup. And <laughs> I know it's not the gendered role you're all expecting, but that's who I am. And I'm going to, I'm going to live true to myself. Yeah. Right. And we can feel like imposters when we're faking it the way other, we think other people expect us to behave. And we've sort of walked away from our own power in that process. We've almost walked outside of ourselves to go adopt the norms of someone else. I'm with you. And I know you and I have struggled and talked through this. But one of the questions that I get a lot from people who are ready to sort of step into themselves is that they may be struggling and they may be stepping into something that has has a, a label. Like I, I have depression. I'm your marketing director and I'm really clinically depressed right now. So how can you step into owning that at work and saying, this is who I am. I was your great marketing director before. I'm still your great marketing director, but this is what I'm dealing with without letting it almost define you, but limit you in your own head. Yeah. And so, you know, some of this is how we hold it, right? Yeah. So if we, if we think about ourselves as I'm not enough, if I'm not already perfect, if I'm not enough, if I'm not doing your business plan the way you want it done, whatever, these different ways in which we can have other people define us. And I think about it as sort of three levels of conversation we have with ourselves. One is, I'm not enough, period. The next is, I'm enough if I do something and fit into a certain profile. You know, I'll go to business plan and create awesome PowerPoints or whatever. And the third one is, I'm enough just as I am. Hmm. And so what do I bring? What capacities do I bring today? to add value into this room. And it could be, right, it could be that that person who was a great marketing campaigner um, in the past now has depression and says, you know, our prior um, campaigns didn't have enough sensitivity built in. Let's actually talk about it, things in a different way. And maybe her own mental health helps her have empathy with the audience in a different way. Um, I was a person for a very long time, didn't want to live inside my own onlyness. Because that person, you know, and I would almost point to myself now, uh, was the person who was abused as a child, who had been raped by a serial rapist, had been fired from a job, right, whatever, all these different things have happened in my life. And over time, I've actually been like, yep, I was raped by a serial rapist. And it makes me really aware of what it is to be violated. And so now when other people are treated unfairly at this really deep level. I feel it. And it's become like almost a super skill. So someone's listening to us and hopefully feeling inspired. What is the first step that they take towards claiming their onlyness? Mm -hmm. So the biggest part of claiming onlyness is really to just look at what is it you care about? And I usually ask this in two major ways. First is, what is your history and experience that has informed and shaped what you care about today? 
And sometimes when I ask this question, people will say things like, oh, I really care about equity and people's safety or whatever. And they won't like share the dark side of that story. Like they won't go where I just went, which is having been raped Mm -hmm. by a serial rapist. I really care about power dynamics because rape is fundamentally about power. Right. They won't own it. So when you can claim your history and experience, both the positive and the shadow of it, you can have depth to understanding what is it you care about. That's the first step. Second one is to ask, what would I do with all that? So the way I ask the question actually is, uh, if you had the magic wand, the one that in Disney movies turns pumpkins into carriages and mice (laughs) into horses, what would you use the magic wand to do? And I don't know about you, but usually people, as soon as I ask that question, they had something that sparked to their mind. Yeah. And I go, okay, now combine those two things for a minute. What would you do? How would you apply that spot in the world only you stand, which is a function of your history and experience, that first side I just talked about, as well as your visions and hopes with that magic wand moment kind of gets to, what would you do with it? And usually within a little bit of time, that process can be just a really clarifying thing of saying, here's what I care about. I want to I talk about fitting in mm. because that's something that is super powerful in your book, because I think it's something that the our inner 12-year-old can relate to. There is no one that I've ever met who doesn't relate to the concept of, oh my gosh, do I fit in? It's such a powerful way in, I think, to your work. And you say in your, in your book, you say 61% of people admit to covering up their true selves. And even, and I, tell me if this is the right statistic, 45% of white men, which mm-hmm. I, that always makes me interested and curious. And what's the relationship between anxiety and this covering up? I mean, it seems obvious, but let's let's just give me your answer. Yeah. So the first thing is 61%. Just think about that. You know, it's it's major, well over majority of a room of people are sitting there trying to fake it in any room. That's right. And even it, the boss, that, probably. Even the boss. And in fact, just the other day, there was some research published that said, listen, if there are three or more women on the board... Uh, people have a lot more freedom to be themselves, you know, and I said, actually, oh, I read the research and, and I thought to myself, actually, it's not about the women. It's about the fact that as soon as you've let enough difference in the room, all difference can manifest. That's what ends up happening. And so this, this thing about 40, even 45% of white men doing it just shows how predominant an issue it is. So I think about my husband, who is a relatively quiet guy he will wait to kind of suss out the room before he'll start commenting and he'll say he'll come home sometimes from work and say you know I didn't get a word in edgewise and I had quite a bit to say and he goes but only the loud people got the room today and then sometimes what they do is they assume that false identity of I'll now be a loud person and elbow my way to the table because that's That's how it works and that's a form of fitting in uh here's some other examples I had a I had a major financial guy say to me, I will never tell anyone in this room this idea I have about serving the other banked. And I was like, well, why wouldn't you tell them? It seems like a brilliant idea that would expand the market share of the company. And he goes, yeah, in order for me to tell that story, I'd have to reveal that I understand poverty. Mm. And he goes, in this room, and then he actually pointed out all the Hermes ties. He goes, that's a $195 tie, that's a $195 tie, that's $195, and every day they wear different Hermes ties at this company. And he says, so there is no way that I am actually showing up as my full self. And here's what I always say to people. Does he wear an Hermes tie now? He does. Yeah, of course he does. It's a form of covering, right? It's a form of ways in which he's completely figured out how to adopt the norms. It's... um, 
it's women who wear um, designer bags and women of color especially will show up in their first career job with a designer bag because they're trying to show that they fit into white women's. Yes, they're trying to signal what is white women's, you know, cultural status. It's bags. So, okay, I'm going to go buy that bag. So there's all these different ways in which we cover up. And the way in which in that case of the banking example, right, he's pointing to the Hermes tie. He had a profoundly interesting idea that he was not bringing to the table that could have served the entire company, let alone the marketplace. What I always say when I'm talking to people is, listen, we're mostly all doing it. As soon as some of us break the pattern, the whole thing kind of comes apart because everyone actually really wants to be their full authentic self. Baby steps to being you, you know. So, so I just I'll share here how how your work really changed my life because, and and I say this also being fully conscious that I am a well educated, well off white woman, heterosexual, married, you know, very very much privileged in order to be to be authentic, which not everyone is, but. I realized in the idea of containing multitudes that I could talk on air about things that are shame-filled and taboo, like my dependency on drinking and my anxiety and my meds, and my clients would still hire me (laughs) anyway. (laughs) It wouldn't affect how they thought about me as their communications consultant just because I like to work in bed, and I sometimes take Xanax. And hide in the bathroom. And Well, absolutely. <laughs> so it was like an incredible moment. Now, again, I'm privileged to be able to say that. But do you remember when you you didn't know you could do that? Of course I didn't. Who, who's going to tell you you can do that? Well, only, right, so only what, you. <laughs> do you remember that? Well, what's that moment like, right? That little moment where you go from, can I just be a little bit more me? Can I share this one thing I'm keeping a secret? What was, can you, can you decode what went on in your head in that moment? And then I want to comment on it too. Well, I, I think for me, it was the first time that I admitted that I only worked a certain number of hours a day. And I like to go to Whole Foods or the grocery store in the middle of the day that felt I know this sounds lame, but that felt really transgressive. Because I mm. felt like my clients would read that and think, Oh, we're paying her and she's not working hard. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So you found a way to actually give yourself permission to go do this thing that actually really served you. And you know what right? happened instead? They liked you so much more. Well, they'd email me from their Gmails and be like, oh, my God, how do you do it? I want to work from home, too, but I, I can't. Tell me how. Right, because we're all dying to be ourselves. That's the big lesson, right? And that's, we give so much permission to certain people in the organization to be themselves. Oh, and yes. then the rest of us try to figure out how to fit in. And what I think is actually happening is even that group of people aren't really served by this set of norms that have been established at work, which is workaholism and loud behavior and not listening to each other and competing for interests. All this negative behavior at work that is almost always now the default mm-hmm. started off with alpha male behavior competing against each other. And what we need is a range of leadership constructs, a range of ways of figuring out how to show up to work with all of our different perspectives, being able to shape that workplace so that it's human. Or, or not show up to work and still be great. And exactly. Show up <laughs> to work, not at work. Right. Exactly. exactly. That's it for this week's show. 
If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.